you can now hear Movie Heaven, Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad, and in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and it's on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. You can stream your favorite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. And please leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers that enjoy talking about other directors' work. And uh, as one of these specials, today we are joined by a very special guest indeed, aren't we, Simon? We are indeed. Uh, We are joined by Charles de Lazarica, um, who is the um, director-producer on uh, a lot of uh, DVD uh, documentaries that you've seen, uh, like the Alien Quadrilogy and Dangerous Days, and he is also the director of Crave. So uh, thank you for joining Welcome, us. Welcome, Charles. Welcome. Uh, all, all, all the way from California, we're, we're, we're uh, Skyping. Is that correct? That's correct. Sunny Los Angeles. Oh, I'll be yes. out there at the end of the month. So. Oh, Yes. Looking forward to it. Now, I don't know, you've probably not listened to any of our um, podcasts before, and and why would you have? But uh, you'll know that one of the things we talk a lot about um, as being avid movie fans is we are really into our DVD and Blu-ray collections, and particularly special features, documentaries, and things of that nature, which is why it's uh, such such a thrill to have you involved today. Well, I actually I have listened uh, to a previous podcast, so I know where you guys are coming from, and I'm I'm you know really excited to talk to you about whatever it is you want to talk about because I, I love talking movies and I love talking about my work. So uh, yeah, let's let's do it. So um, Charles, where did it start for you? Where where did you uh, study? Well, I studied officially. I went to USC. Uh, school of cinema, cinema and television, which is where you know George Lucas and Robert Zemeckis and John Singleton and those guys went to, John Carpenter. Um, <clears throat> but I, I'd actually I feel like I'd been studying long, long before that as a as a kid making Super Eight movies on my own, and that came about. You know, first of all, it begins with finding movies that I was madly in love with, like Jaws and Star Wars, which really kind of set me on the path of not just being a movie fan, but also trying to figure out how they made them and and fortunately with star wars that was one of the first films that i remember as a kid that really promoted how they made them they actually put out you know the making of star wars on tv and they actually showed you uh you know these cool miniatures in front of blue screens that they would blow up and as a kid you you know you think about wow i want to blow up tie fighters and x-wings and i want to do this stuff so uh it began with that and then super eight kind of experiments you know based on having read magazines like like Cinemagic and Cinefax and and uh, various you know like American Cinematographer, 
things like that. Um, but then eventually, you know, one gets serious and then you, you try to go to school. And that's where I ended up was at USC uh, film school. What was it like attending it? Because uh, we can only imagine. Um, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, it's not that I, I, I felt like I was uh, misled. It's just that, you know, when you hear the, of the pedigree of, of the directors that went there, um, you think, wow, this is going to be the, the cream of the crop, the ultimate, you know, film school experience. We're going to be transformed from a, you know, a, a fan into like this, you know, visionary, which is so not the case. It's basically you go, I mean, there are a bunch of other kids who just want to party and drink beer and have fun and, and, and maybe pull out a camera every now and then and maybe shoot something for class. Uh, and then, and then, you know, maybe like 10% of, of that group are serious and who really want to make movies. And that's the, the 10% I tended to uh, gravitate towards. And, and they, a lot of them are still my friends to this day, uh, you know, over 20 years later. So um, it was, uh, it was interesting. It was very competitive. You know, it was a lot of arrogance, uh, a lot of which came from myself, you know, I have to say. Um, and, and it was humbling too, because, you know, you go in thinking you're going to be the next big thing and you come out of there just destroyed <laughs> and like wondering what's my future. Um, and uh, it was uh, it was it was a good experience to have to sort of like as as Yoda says you know un unlearn what you have learned. I feel like that was kind of a good thing to do. Um, and uh, and but I've made a lot of lifelong friends and I made a lot of mistakes that hopefully I haven't made since. And uh, and uh, yeah, it was and it was also really great to just be at a film school that was so well connected to the industry because. I, uh, I managed to, to land quite a few internships and, you know, lowly kind of production assistant type jobs through USC and through friends there. And that got me connected with all kinds of people in, in, in the industry, you know, beyond USC. And I, uh, I worked at companies like uh, Silver Pictures, Joel Silver's company. I worked a little bit at uh, Lightstorm, James Cameron's company. Uh, Lucasfilm was my, my first time I worked with them as an intern. Um, but ultimately, the, the company that I really clicked with was was Scott Free was uh, Ridley and Tony Scott's company, and um, that's I became an intern there, and that became a like a script reading job, and then a story editor, and then just sort of like doing odd jobs here and there, and then that led to the DVD gig. I'm just wondering if um, if you weren't able to get a job at um, uh, it's uh, RCA, isn't it? Um, you mean RSA? Yes. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's his commercial company. That's that's different than Scott Free. Ah, right. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Uh, but if you weren't able to get uh, the job at Scott Free, uh, what other company would you've gone with? Oh, I don't know. I mean, um, I, I it's kind of funny. It's almost like going on a date, and sometimes it clicks, and sometimes it doesn't. And for some reason, the Scott Free date clicked. You know, and that became <laughs> a long term relationship. And uh, the other ones were fine. And you know, uh, I, I didn't. I didn't have. I always learned something from them, but. I imagine I would have maybe gone on to other companies and explored, you know, other options. Uh, looking back, if I could, if I could talk to my younger self twenty years ago, I probably would have encouraged him to stick to the directing, uh, you know, path a bit harder because I was broke. You know, I had no money. I was coming out of film school with student loans and, you know, really, really dire situation. And you're just desperate to get something going. And as much as I really wanted to, to direct. Um, and I was pursuing that pretty aggressively. That was not paying the bills. And the reality of the situation kind of led me to the the development job at Scott Free and then eventually the DVD producing job. And that that did pay the bills. So that kind of stabilized me and allowed me to, you know, live. Um, but it also became an all-encompassing job for me, one that I, I loved and I embraced very, very strongly, obviously. 
but um, it definitely was a sidetrack that I was not expecting to take and, and took me down a different path, which is, again, that's life and that's great. And I, and I don't regret any of it. But if I could go back in time, I'd probably say push harder on the directing and just try to struggle through those, those lean years more. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really glad you said that because um, obviously I'm sort of sat here green with envy because you've, you've worked with some of my absolute, you know, directing idols growing up, you know, certainly the likes of uh, Ridley and Tony Scott, you know, not to mention a, a host of others. But um, uh, yeah, that was one of the questions I was going to have for you, actually, was, um, you, you, you know, clear, clearly the intention was to be a, a film director, which you've since done, which is great. Um, but yeah, I, I wondered, you know, what sort of got you on the path of, you um, of doing these these documentaries which we're really grateful by the way that you've done because they're great um but uh but but i guess it was it was just an opportune meeting then and uh exactly you had to pay the bills so that was kind of the way to go for a while yeah yeah for sure and and you know i i it's funny because when i was interning uh for lucasfilm one of the uh the the kind of perks of the job was being able to go to Skywalker Ranch and then they had like an intern day where the president of the company then uh, named Gordon Radley he had like a luncheon with us where he kind of imparted advice and 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 whatnot and everyone there was asking you know how well how do we you know how do we do the next big thing that we all are dreaming of and his advice to all of us was you know kind of let let life uh, lead you you know kind of don't don't resist the direction life is taking you in, kind of embrace it and see what happens because you might uncover something even more magical. And, and I sort of, I, I sort of took that advice at, at, which was basically, you know, a couple of years or two or three years after, I think that luncheon was around the time the DVD started taking off. And it wasn't just the necessity of survival uh, of making money. It was also sort of like, well, this is, this is interesting. And, it, and it, it's sort of like filmmaking. I mean, I still have to tell a story and you still have to present a, a beginning, middle, and end, and you still have to create engaging characters. It's just, it's in the documentary form, and basically you're making movies about movies. So I, uh, you know, I followed that path, and that just seemed to be a natural way to go uh, for a while, and it certainly um, was enough to make me uh, enjoy uh, life versus, you know, really just kind of getting out of it, because another, that's the other thing about film school is like so many people that I know at the time who wanted to dearly, dearly make movies have now completely gotten out of the business or have, have no interest in pursuing film because they were just so, you know, uh, taken on another path, you know, through, through life or circumstance or whatever. So again, it's like, I, I don't, I don't regret having gone this, this DVD route, but it's, uh, you know, I think it's, it's an interesting sidetrack in what I still believe is, is a, is a different path that I'm on, you know, if that makes any sense. No, it makes total sense. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I when I left film school, I, I did an internship at Chapman Leonard Studios, thinking that that was going to kind of lead to some stuff, and you know, met a few people, but but not really. So, so I hear you. Um, on a practical level, then, when when you make these um, documentaries, uh, are you responsible for you know, as the producer of it? Do, do you do everything from from the filming right the way through to the edit or or are you part of a team that do these discs um you know it's different every time to be honest i don't think i've ever had the same experience twice on these projects um on some of them i'm literally it's me alone operating the camera uh from day one um on others i have a, a big team you know that are, that are doing a variety of things so it kind of depends on the needs of the project um I mean, case in point, like Prometheus, I was I was shooting 
early, early pre-production footage, probably a year or more before production even began, just on my own, because one of the biggest challenges of the Alien movies, uh, especially the first film, Alien, is there's not a lot of behind-the-scenes footage available. You know, not like today where they shoot every day on set and you have, you know, three different cameras and GoPros and everything covering everything. You know, back then it was probably just, you know, one or two people with a 16 millimeter camera over the course of, you know, a couple days here, a couple days there throughout the whole shoot. So you don't really have a lot um, to draw upon. And I know there's more footage out there, but the footage that that Fox has is, is limited to what we've seen uh, originally on the Laserdisc special editions and then, you know, gradually over the DVD and then the Blu-ray releases. So... You know, I, I always think back, if I was a time traveler, could I go back to 1976 with, you know, a modern camera and just shoot the hell out of the making of Alien, what would I do? You know, <laughs> and that's how I approached Prometheus, was I thought, well, okay, here's my chance to do that. So even if we're not officially a go, you know, documentary yet, or the Blu-ray or DVD extras haven't been figured out yet, I'm still going to start documenting, because once this stuff is gone, it's gone forever. So I just started documenting on my own. For you know, over a year out of my own pocket, just shooting. Uh, you know, Ridley would have me come down to meetings, and I would just shoot things, and and so that was that was me. You know, like a one man band until we became a you know an official uh, you know crew with Fox, and then then it became a little bit more robust in terms of how it was covered, and you know, it was more of a traditional studio project. But the great part of that was I had all this early days, you know, footage um, that was very intimate behind closed doors, and you know, Ridley working directly with. The artists and the writers, just it was it was the kind of stuff that you don't normally get on a film. So that's where that's that was kind of like the full spectrum of me as like a one, you know, man, am, you know, kind of camera operator, and then then eventually overseeing a bigger crew. What was your um, sort of favorite uh, documentary to do or disc to do? That is that's such a difficult question um, because they're all so different. I mean. I remember the one I had the most fun on originally was actually Hannibal um, because that was the first one I was allowed to do solo. Um, before that, the studios were more interested in me uh, teaming up with a with a more established producer and uh, and just kind of being Ridley's eyes and ears and supervising and helping out. But Hannibal was the first time I actually got to do the whole thing, um, and that was that was a lot of fun. That was really almost intoxicating in terms of being able to finally jump into the game and play, you know. But um, I would say since then, uh, Blade Runner was certainly a huge, huge one for me because it's my favorite movie. And just being able to go, you know, every day through boxes and boxes of lost footage and, and you know, all of these old elements that no one had ever seen since they made the movie. Um, and then just getting to, like, interview so many of the cast and crew, just having such a broad, broad exploration of my favorite film. I mean, that was like, it's like I tell everybody, it was like Christmas every day, you know, going going to that. So um, I, I'd, have, I'd say Blade Runner was probably the most most fun. But in terms of being on set, Prometheus, for sure. Prometheus was the most fun being on set because that was like being on an alien set. You know, I mean, like those massive uh, sound stages that had, you know, the, the derelict or what's now called the juggernaut ship with the, the space jockeys, a.k.a. the engineers, and um, or even the Prometheus itself. I mean, to be able to walk onto these beautifully, beautifully made sets was like traveling through time and space, you know. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I can't pick just one is my short answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I'd try asking us what our favorite films are, and it's just, yeah, yeah there's so many to pick from. Well, actually, while you were talking about um, Prometheus, there, I, I grabbed my um, 
Blu-ray. I, I, I bought the over in the UK. If you wanted all the special features, you had to get the three disc collector's edition that had the 3D version of the movie as well as the 2D. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just curious, actually, I wonder how much of that is in the documentary that's that's on here because um i bought this version because it had more on it and uh, i have watched it you know back when i bought it but um uh yeah i mean you you said that you know you shot you know hours upon hours of footage so i just wondered how how much of that process actually got through to the disc um or not whether you know that you probably you might not even know <laughs> well i mean I, I know i know what we delivered as our final product um it was just sort of um you know, you when you when you shoot documentaries, you you know you're you're shooting, uh, you're overshooting, you know, because you need to uh, you, you need to basically ready for any moment that something amazing happens. You know, you need to be ready for the good and the bad. So you just you just roll and roll and roll, and you end up with literally just you know hundreds of hours of footage that you have to weed through, and then that you use that to serve your story. So you know, in combination with all that footage you've shot, all that B-roll. Then you shoot the interviews, and those are your storytellers. And then once you have them cobbled together basically into a narrative, then you go back to your B-roll and you use that to illustrate the points that are being made. So, yeah, there's, there's I mean, it's not just Prometheus. It's any documentary that I think I did or, or anyone else would do uh, would have, you know, tons of footage that you wouldn't see in the final you know, project. It's just that, you know, you have to cover that stuff just in case gold happens, you know. So in terms of the Prometheus set, I mean, I, I think the documentary is like three and a half hours long, if I'm not mistaken, or it's pretty close to three hours. And yeah, then there's, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. And then there's, <laughs> they're all the, thank you. And then there are, there are all the enhancement pods that kind of chase the documentary. So I think that's like another hour, maybe. Um, so all, all told, I mean, you're getting a pretty healthy amount of, uh, you know, documentary footage, uh, even though, no, it's nowhere near close to the, all the raw footage. And maybe one, you know, maybe one day studios will release raw footage, almost like a subscription service where you just go online and it's almost like, uh, like, you know, you're watching a surveillance camera where you just watch raw uncut footage of the set. But, but then of course there's no story really to go with it. You're just, you're just uh, a voyeur. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to say is that wouldn't be very interesting because the, the, the thing I do enjoy about your documentaries is the fact that there is like a, a story, you know, it's the story about how the film came together but it's it is a com sort of complete story and you know delving into you know some of the problems that happened on set and things that were overcome to sort of make the finished product i mean it was um it was certainly good to see in the blade runner documentary that you didn't sort of skimp over the whole uh, t-shirt wars or or sort of any of sort of the the problems they had on set well, that's the, I mean, that's the, that's the juiciest material, and and it's not it's not juicy because it's you know wrought with conflict and anger and 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 you know drama and politics. It's it's interesting because it shows human beings, creative human beings, uh, on their path to telling the story they want to tell, and how there's so many different opinions and so many different viewpoints that are often at odds with each other, um, and yet in that clash. Um, comes great art, and I and I think that's one of the reasons why Blade Runner is my favorite movie is because you can tell that there was a filmmaker, you know, fighting for his vision, uh, fighting tooth and nail to get that film on the screen, and I think for the most part he did. But then there's also the added dimension of the conflict that's in every frame of that film. You know, it's both compromise and 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 the the fight. You know, is it's all wrapped up in this really really intense experience. 
So when you when you start to unpack that and make a documentary out of it, it's 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 a lot of really I think fertile ground to cover. Uh, and I, I felt like with Blade Runner we could do no less. I mean, Paul Salmon who wrote the book uh, Future Noir: The Making of Blade Runner, I mean, kind of set the tone for uh, what kind of shoot Blade Runner was and all the issues and all the drama and the conflicts. And if we were to have glossed over that, I think we would have completely failed. So I, I, I you know, from day one, I was out to embrace the drama because look, it was, it was at the time we made the documentary it was 25 years earlier. So you hope those wounds heal uh, mm. enough that people will talk about it. And they did for the most part. And in fact, when I conducted the interviews for Blade Runner for Dangerous Days, um, you know, people came back. Uh, I mean, we interviewed overall about 80 people for, for all of the Blade Runner extras. And I feel like people kind of came out of the woodwork, not just to set the record straight, but because they had pride in the movie, like what the movie had become over time. And, and they were happy to talk about it, even though, yes, it was some bad memories and it was a really difficult shoot. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, 25 years later and people look back and they think, like, yeah, it was a tough shoot, but we made a, a classic film. So that's kind of the viewpoint. It's not to dig up dirt. It's mo mostly to kind of just put it to bed and, and have people's voices heard. Well, certainly we, as crews, we always sort of love our war stories. We love talking about the shoots that went wrong and uh, rather the shoots that went well. Um, but I was just wondering, did, did you get starstruck at all with, if, during any of these interviews for any of the documentaries? You know, it, it's rare uh, just because I've done so many of them. And, and ultimately, you know, you're sitting there and you think I have a job to do. And, you know, if you're if you're conducting an interview, you're not only asking questions, you're also listening and you're also kind of pre-editing everything in your head you're kind of like buffering everything you're hearing because you you think okay i need this bit to tell this part of the story and i didn't get that clearly enough so i need to re-ask it in a different way or maybe you're you're learning something for the first time and you do a follow-up to try to get more information so you're you're constantly factoring in all these things as you're talking to you know an a-list director or a megastar who are sitting like you know six feet away from you um, the only time I ever, ever, I think, got truly starstruck was Harrison Ford. Um, oh, right. Well, because I mean, he was such a childhood movie hero of mine, you know, when you're, you're sitting there right across from Han Solo, Indiana Jones, and Rick Deckard wrapped into one guy who, by the way, he, you know, he's a, a formidable presence when he walks in the room. I mean, it's like that's a, that's a movie legend who just stepped in, in the door. And... Um, I remember one of the first questions I asked, and by the way, I go into this interview knowing that Harrison is a very straightforward guy. He doesn't like, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't really like carry these memories as, he doesn't cherish them the way movie fans do, right? For him, it's a job. He goes from one movie to the other and he tries to do the best job he can. Um, so I, I start, I think we kind of started conversationally uh, just about, you know, about Blade Runner in general and what we were hoping to, to achieve with the documentary and the final cut and everything. And we kind of joked and chit-chatted about other things, but for whatever reason, I asked a question that triggered a very long soundbite from him, a really long story about the recording of the voiceover. In fact, if you even watch the, the footage, you can see him set a glass down because he was still kind of in casual, you know, having a glass of water <laughs> mode. And um, he sets the glass down and tells us like really animated story about the, you know, kind of the train wreck of, of the voiceover and Blade Runner about the multiple re recording sessions and the politics behind it. And, and I've never seen him like this animated before ever about Blade Runner. Cause usually when you see him in interviews, he kind of mumbles like, yeah, it was a tough movie and yeah, it was whatever. He, you know, he doesn't really seem to engage, but he had a story to tell. So I just sat there in awe as he told this amazing story about recording the voiceover. And when it was over, you know, it, it, I just, I just stood staring at him and, and I, all I could muster was cool. 
<laughs> and then he looked at me and goes, no, it wasn't cool. It was terrible. You know? <laughs> at that point, I realized, okay, I have to wake up and, and bring my A game because I'm being a total, you know, fanboy with him. And, uh, and then the rest of the interview was perfectly fine and, and, and fun. Um, but like that first moment was when I realized, oh my God, I, yeah, yes, it is Harrison Ford, but yes, I also have a job to do. Oh yeah. But I mean, the, just, just to hear that story, cause, um, I don't think he's talked about Blade Runner much, has he in the past? Not really. I mean, I think more and more since the 25th anniversary, because, you know, I think he fully recognizes it's one of his, you know, his, one of his classics and one of the films that, you know, grew into a into quite a beloved movie over time. So I think he's probably proud of it now, even if it was a tough shoot. And maybe, you know, I'm sure he still has issues about the Deckard as a replicant, you know, controversy. But uh, I, I think he's probably embraced the the love that the film now has. Yeah. Now, it's, it's such a, um, that one is such a comprehensive uh, documentary. Um, I mean, I, I remember uh, I like to sort of, over between Christmas and New Year, I normally take those periods off work. And I remember one year, I I did the entire Alien quadrilogy, uh, you know, in between. And then the following year, I did the Blade Runner um, set, you know, with all the different cuts and and watched all your documentaries. And I mean, it, it literally is like there's no no stone unturned. It's it's amazing the amount of information that's crammed into it. So uh, we love that. Absolutely, absolutely excellent stuff, you know. <laughs> Thanks. I, I, I owe you a beer the next time I see you. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, uh, we, we, I, actually, I might be on some of your uh, B footage somewhere because uh, I, I was lucky enough. I did do a little bit of stand-in work on, on Prometheus. Oh, yeah? Um, I was, yeah, I was only covering someone, so I only did about six weeks on it in total. But um but yeah, I, I had to hold in the inner geek somewhat when I uh, when I walked onto those sets because, as you mentioned, I mean the the wonderful thing with that at Pinewood was, as opposed to uh, you know everything being green screen and artificial and all that, for, with Ridley everything was uh, was was real right down to the little details of the you know the buttons on the on the control consoles and stuff which uh, which totally blew me away I have to say. <laughs> Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a very immersive uh, uh, set and, and world that was created there. I mean, the fact that they had to extend the Bond stage uh, a bit further, you know, like a third longer, I believe it was, to fit all that set in there. I mean, that just goes to show how big those sets were and how completely, uh, you know, transportative they were. Uh, you, you really felt like you were on another planet. I mean, and that, that's, that's one of the reasons why I love that set so much, beyond the fact that I think the energy on the set was very positive. I mean, I think everybody there was so excited that Ridley was finally returning to science fiction, and they were so excited that this was going to be an alien movie, but kind of in a new way. And, and just the fact that you're right, there was like not a lot of green screen. I mean, there was some here and there, but for the most part, those were fully constructed environments. So um, it was like a, a theme park. You know, it was like the, the alien park at Disneyland or something. It was, it was really fun. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't take any photos, though. I didn't want to lose my job or let anybody I was covering down. So uh, the camera stayed away at all times. But uh, yeah. It's all in the mind. <laughs> well, I, I was surprised. I was surprised how little leaked out on Prometheus because I know, you know, obviously everyone signed an NDA and everyone was very respectful to Ridley wanting to keep it, you know, secret. But, um, you know, usually on a film of that of that nature, uh, like a Star Wars film, for instance, I mean, there's always people on the lookout to sneak stuff out or, or get some kind of set photography or something. 
And Prometheus managed to go the full uh, production with very little leaking out. I mean, there's a, the occasional photo of a of a you know piece of a set somewhere on the you know in the garbage or whatever. But it was like it was very little got out. Versus, I think that so many other movies, you know, you have people just leaking things left and right. So I was kind of surprised. I was, I was, you know, I was talking to, you know, some of the other members of the crew, and we were always wondering, you know, when's the first big leak going to come out? And it never did. Well, I heard a story from uh, a friend of mine who worked on uh, the art department, and he was saying that on the first day, there was a lot of um, tweets going out from people saying, oh, I'm working on Prometheus, I'm working on Prometheus. And the next day, there was like a memo that went round that said the tweets must stop. Did you hear about that at all? Um, I didn't. I do remember, though, when they were shooting, um, there, there was those four or five um, viral pieces they did. And it was the day, I believe, when they shot uh, Guy Pierce as young Peter Wayland doing his TED talk, and I remember there was one extra in particular who really went um, way they they crossed the line quite a bit in terms of tweets oh, right. and photos and things, and it was kind of ridiculous. It was almost like this one person sort of felt like they won the lottery and they were in the biggest movie of all time. They're going to tell the world, and I, I think that person got shut down pretty hard. But um, besides that, I don't remember there being much in terms of uh, leaks. Because I know something everyone was very conscious about. I mean, even the sets had security at all times to make sure that there was no uh, photography. I mean, a couple times I had to explain myself. You know, I had the badge and I had the camera and everything. And finally they got used to me. But in the early days, I had to explain, you know, who I was and what I was doing, which is kind of amusing. Well, I think at Pinewood they uh, foster um, uh, an attitude that that kind of thing is wrong anyway. Um, I visited there just a month ago before um and they were getting geared up for episode eight and the security there a was really you know really high but also i remember seeing like a tv they had like their own tv channel and there was always this like do not take pictures pictures ruin the industry it doesn't help us and it was just it was constantly sort of there for everybody to sort of see that this kind of behavior wasn't on yeah well, it's funny because I was at Pinewood for Exodus and um, I had a lot of, you know, I had friends who worked on Prometheus who were then working on The Force Awakens. And uh, I mean, now that the film is out, I, I guess it's OK to say, I mean, the, the, you know, the code name for the film was Avco when they were shooting. And I always thought that was interesting because if you're if you're a serious Star Wars fan, you probably know or at least at least an, a Los Angeles Star Wars fan like myself knows that it, it played at the Avco Theater in Westwood. And that's I mean, that's uh. Return of the Jedi. But to me, it was like Avco wasn't the issue. It was the issue that they used the Star Wars font, like the title font, <laughs> for, their, for the security, you know, logo for their cards and things. And I was, wow! I mean, you got all the trouble to have a secret code name, but then you use the Star Wars. And it's amusing because now you know photos already come out from Episode Eight of you know the Space Bear logo, and it's like it's you know it's it's a straight up Star Wars logo. So it's almost like they're not even trying that hard anymore because it's so it's so look it's so top secret. Like even if they called it episode eight, people would still, you know, the, the security measures at Pinewood are so tight. Um, I don't think there's much to worry about, but you know, that's, that's part of the process is, is the, the games you have to play to keep people on their toes and keep the secrets in. Well, I mean, it's for me, I'd been to Pinewood got back in the late nineties. And I remember going to pick up some lights for a shoot and you just went through this old archway and there was a security guard who just waved you in. And then I hadn't been for like, over 10 years and then so the last time i went having to see this like airport security and everything was like it was really really threw me how much it's sort of it's 
grown and how much security wise it's gone a lot tighter than it used to be well it's a, it's a whole new world too because now that people are using drones to craft that's basically you know and now you have to have anti-drone drones to take the drones out you know it's uh it's amusing it's like you're having your own little uh you know your own little star war there above the the, the soundstage where you're knocking you know spies out of the, out of the air um <laughs> but yeah there's it's it's amazing i mean i have no doubt like within our lifetimes we, we as human beings will uh have like you know nano cameras in our eyes and we'll be able to record everything we see and therefore it's gonna be a whole new level of security uh we're gonna have to endure to even work you know yes it is madness isn't it <laughs> can we get on to your actual uh feature debut um you you did a psychological thriller called crave which uh, i guess did you shoot that in 2009 was it because i noticed um, uh, some of the dates on some of the stuff in the film was 09 so i i just thought you either said it in 2009 or shot it in 2009 so <laughs> it's, it's funny it's kind of both we we started in 2009 and then we finished shooting in 2010 and then we edited throughout 2011 and then we screened it in 2012 so at around 2012 i thought i almost thought about like um the movie witness uh, came out in 1985, but there's a timestamp in the beginning of the film that says 1984, and I thought maybe I'll pull a witness, and even though it's 2012, I'll put a little timestamp that says Detroit 2009, just to kind of explain why there are things like you correctly point out, say 2009. But then I thought, ah, it's all right, not no, let's not worry about it. So, um, yeah, it, it's you know it's independent filmmaking, and it's you know it's really kind of guerrilla in terms of the the financing and the shooting and getting the crew and everything together. So it took a while. Um, we shot for about 21 days in Detroit in 2009 and we left Detroit, uh, minus one very critical scene, which we weren't able to pick up until, uh, July, I think it was of 2010 in Chicago. So that right there, you know, we were down for eight months or nine months, uh, between the Detroit shoot and the Chicago shoot during which time we, you know, we edited and we cobbled things together and we saw what we were, we were missing. So it was kind of good because then for that second shoot, we were able to get everything that was left over for the most part. Um, but then it's, you know, it's basically you're asking people who have a day job to help you out uh, in their off hours or weekends. So that's why it takes, you know, a longer time when you're, when you're not dealing with a fully budgeted, you know, full-fledged studio film that can just power through and get it done. I mean, we were limping along for literally years finishing that film. Can I ask why you didn't go down the studio route, or was that not an option? Um, you know, I, I kind of considered that a little bit. I just don't think it's that kind of movie, and, and frankly, it all came about, I mean, hopefully this isn't too long of a story, but it all came about because I was, and I still am, I mean, I, I've been working on this um, adaptation of a Philip K. Dick short story called I Hope I Shall Arrive Soon, and my writing partner, uh, Kalen Egan, uh, and I had delivered a script that we were really happy with and, and the Dick uh, estate was very happy with and a lot of people who read it thought it was great but it was a it's a you know it's a big science fiction film and even though we were at the time planning on it on it being sort of a district nine level kind of like 30 million dollar movie uh, even for a first time director 30 million dollars is still a lot of money in, in this day and age so um, Issa Dick Hackett Philip Dick's daughter she asked me you know would I consider doing a smaller film first just to kind of prove that I can direct and, uh, and then that'll hopefully help with arrive. And so I thought, sure. And I, and I reached out to my neighbor at the time who actually is, is a filmmaker and his name's uh, Robert Lawton. And he, 
basically said, yeah, I've got an idea. It's, it's Travis Bickle meets Walter Mitty. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so let's, let's do that. And so we basically spent, you know, months and probably over a year developing and getting that script together. And that, that became Crave. And the whole notion was to do something really lean and mean and cheap and just get it done. You know, that was, that was the plan. And of course, even that took forever. Um, so it was almost like it's not that we were trying to avoid the studio route. It's just that it began as such a small thing that eventually was much bigger than planned. And it's almost like we grew into a almost like a studio level film, but from a, a basically a homemade let's go shoot on weekends type of you know scope. Also, it just sounds to me like you wanted to get it done quickly as well, so that you could prove that you could direct a feature. Yeah, I mean it was like, it was a glorified test movie basically, um, and you know I think it certainly ended up as far more than that. But the the notion was let's just you know let's just get it done. You know let's just. Let me kind of like lose my feature directing virginity and just get this get this thing finished, you know. And and the problem is, um, you know, that's not the way things work. And on top of that, you know, I'm I'm pushing at every point to try to make it the best it can possibly be. And we're dealing with extremely limited resources, so you know that takes time. And and Crave took time, um, but I think I learned a lot. And it was again another great educational experience where I learned what not to do. Uh, and next time, I'll, there's a lot of things I learned on creative that I will, I will not do again ever. Could you give an example? I th- well, you know, this is going to sound m- maybe obvious, but I, I I kind of felt with Crave because it was my first feature. I wanted to um, learn from the people that I brought on, not just the crew, but also the actors, because you know I'd never done this before. But at the same time, you have to present. Uh, kind of a level of authority as the director to basically make decisions and basically call the shots and tell people what movie you want to make. Um, but by the same token, I also wanted people to contribute their own ideas, their own creativity. So we could have sort of a, you know, we can create this sort of alchemy between all parties and come up with what I would hope would be a better movie. Well, I think next time I'm going to be far more clear and determined in what I want which is not to say I'm going to become a dictator, but I do believe that I was a little too touchy-feely and uh, and a little too friendly with people and a little too, I don't know, human. <laughs> and I think next time I need to be a little more strict and focused in what I want because I think I was just I was too much of a nice guy on this first one. Right. Um, I have to say, though, uh, I, I watched it um, for the first time today, uh, you know, prior to this, and... Uh, you know, I'm not just saying this, but I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was the sort of film that was right up my um, right up my alley, as it were. But uh, um, I have to ask: did did you shoot some of it with multi camera, or was it all single camera? Um, I'd say about ninety percent of the shoot was two camera. It was two reds, and then there were a few sequences where we, we added a couple um, Canon. Uh, 5Ds and 7Ds to to shoot just like different angles. Like for instance, the scene at the AA meeting when the the guy gets his head smashed by the sledgehammer. You know, we had a we had a dummy on set with a uh, with a head that had been put together almost like a jigsaw puzzle. So if it, if the first take didn't go well, we could put it back together. It wasn't just like a one or we 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 could go back and do a second take if we had to, because there were these. Um, you know, these sort of tubes inside the, the dummy that would shoot blood out and, you know, it created a huge mess, but it screwed up. We can always do another take. Well, we didn't need to do a second take uh, because we had four cameras. We had the two reds and then we had the two uh, DSLRs on the side. So we had it pretty much well covered. But for the most part, 
it was two cameras and that really saved us because if it had been a one camera shoot i'm not sure we would have been able to get the level of coverage and um the detail in visual storytelling that we were we were able to with the with the two that we had but then when we got to like the last couple of days we were running out of money then it became like a one camera shoot and then on the uh the second unit stuff we did in Chicago, that was, uh, I believe that was one camera. I might have had a second camera. Actually, no, I think that was two cameras, maybe. Um, yeah. But, I mean, I know a lot of films at that level are usually one camera shoot. So we were kind of lucky that we were able to have a bit more uh, footage to draw upon. Awesome. What was the scene that you had to shoot in Chicago? Uh, that was the opening uh, train sequence. Um Oh, okay. Interesting story was, you know, we, we shot the movie in Detroit and, and all the locals were great and very supportive and the, the local, you know, government and the officials and the police were all really wonderful and supportive. Um, and at the time, Michigan, the state of Michigan had a, a pretty aggressive uh, tax incentive to get films to shoot there. So you'd get a lot of money back um, depending on how much you spent in Michigan. And the, uh, the rebate that we got from Michigan actually paid for all of post-production. So because we shot there, we got basically, you know, the whole movie covered. However, we did run into a problem with the train scene. Um, a bureaucrat at the, uh, the people mover office uh, read the script and apparently did not like uh, the uh, scene. <laughs> that, oh, wow. How could they not like that scene? I mean, come on. But yeah. Well, this person apparently didn't have a sense of humor about uh, depicting gunfire and fellatio on a, uh, on a, on a public transport so that, that you know and i we tried to explain look it's all in the main character's head it's all fantasy it's not really happening we're not saying this stuff actually happens in detroit even though you know detroit has its own reputation but we we kind of thought look it's a fantasy i'm sure plenty worse has been filmed in detroit anyway so that we, we had previously been promised the use of their people mover for like a sunday like we were going to shoot on a sunday the whole day we'd have total control over it we could move it, you know, front and back and, and, you know, be all ours to do with what we, as we pleased. And I think we got the news maybe two or three weeks before that day was coming that we were, we were running into problems with bureaucracy on this. And, um, eventually, and even, you know, multiple people in the community and business owners and people who are trying to keep, you know, one more day of shooting in Detroit just to make some more money for the locals. Um, even with all that help, we got shut down. So we left, Detroit minus that scene. And I spent the next several months trying to figure out, okay, is there a way to tell the story? Is there a way to start this movie off without that scene? But then I realized that scene sets up everything about the main character. And I thought, is there another form of transport? Could we do it on a bus? Could we do it on a ferry? Could we do it in this and that? And no, it really could only be a train because realistically a bus driver would stop the bus if that was happening. And thus the fantasy would, you know, fall apart. Um, it, same with a ferry, same with an airplane. It's like it, it, there's no like contained environment that would work other than the train, just the way it was conceived. So, I um, I brought on another producer, and we spent the next few months just like trying to find a city that had an elevated train, so we could see the outdoors. So it was like you know a real train, not just a set, because we looked at sets and they were they were not convincing. And I even had a discussion with Tony Scott about it because he was making uh, his remake of the Taken of Pelham One Two Three at the time. And I told him the situation, and he um, he said, "Well, you know, I could look into getting uh, my you know train set for you, but it's already in storage um, somewhere in New York, like in Queens or something like that. It's going to cost fifteen thousand dollars just to pull it out and look at it." So I thought, "Okay, well, we can't we can't afford that." And I, re I remember explaining to Tony the reasons why Detroit shut us down, uh, namely the, the the shootout and the 
the blowjob. And, and he kind of like looked at me with this sad expression, like, really? Like, what kind of world are you not allowed to shoot those things? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was, you know, so we tried for months till finally we went to a, um, a location uh, expo uh, here in LA where the different film commissions from all over the world. I mean, we were looking at Czech Republic and Hungary and we were looking at all these countries that might've had trains that we could shoot in. And, uh, and finally the last one we went to, made the most sense and it should have been the first stop we went to which was chicago and and they were so incredibly uh helpful and willing to help us out because you know I, I told the story and they were said yeah well we will completely take care of you so and they did so we uh we got to use one of their it was actually two uh, a two-car train of theirs which we went on the the loop was called the loop in chicago we just took the loop all day long and just went in a circle um ironically at the same time transformers 3 was shooting uh, a few blocks, a few blocks away. So every few minutes, you hear these fifty caliber machine guns firing, and you know it was it was really surreal because at the time I was also working on Transformers Three, uh, working on the behind the scenes of that. So I I went out to shoot my one day on Crave, and then the timing was so perfect, I just stayed in Chicago and then kept working on Transformers. So that really strange alignment of of you know luck there. No, I mean it's well that's that was a very good uh, bit of luck. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I just watched this recently as well, and um, I was sort of quite surprised with um, sort of how taken I was with it, because um, the, the whole idea of this guy living in his head and the, the whole um, idea of that violence is an answer to everything when really it's, it's not. And I, I, really, I really liked that message, and I, I thought you did it in such a, a really good way. Um, though I did wonder, were you trying to get away from it being too ambiguous with what was fantasy and what was reality? Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I, originally, I, my idea was that um, I didn't, I, I, re, I thought like the first half of the movie, let's say, I felt like I wanted to shoot the fantasy sequences as real for real, right? I didn't want it to, to feel like, oh, we're stepping out of the movie for a fantasy because then I feel like the audience loses interest because they thought, okay, well, what we're watching is not actually happening within the, the framework of the story. So I tried to keep it all pretty seamless. Um, and then, you know, later it becomes so obviously ridiculous that you have to kind of embrace that you're in a fantasy. And that's, mm. and that's frankly why there's a turning point in the, in the, in the middle part of the film after Aiden and Virginia... Uh, have sex for the first time, and he's laying in bed, and then he kind of drifts off, and then you see it's actually hours earlier when he was originally thinking about you know connecting with Virginia, and and the audience every time I've screened it, the audience went oh, so they didn't really have sex, you know this, this love didn't actually happen, and that's when <laughs> Aiden in the alternate past looks directly in the camera and says no Aiden this time it's real, and then we yeah. snap present that was yeah. my way of telling the audience like look we don't know what's real and, and fake and we don't i want to keep you guys guessing the rest of the film so that was kind of like a nice way of winking at the audience to say we know we're, we're dealing with fantasies but we're not always sure we're going to tell you that it's a fantasy you know and that's why at the end in the third act all that stuff blurs together i mean you could say okay this is ridiculous there's no way this could be happening but we don't really address it and we never pull out of it because i feel like at that point aiden's brain is broken you know, and let's just let's just enjoy that that uh, broken brain for a bit. Yeah. Oh, certainly. I mean, um, uh, spoilers for anybody who hasn't watched it, but the the bit with Edward Furlong's um, 
character popping yeah. out of a body bag and clapping is certainly i have to say as a, a brilliant touch i actually i thought that was really good, well done especially the thumbs up because it was so creepy we, we tried that thing about 20 different ways too it's like it, it took forever to land on something that i felt worked because eddie eddie furlong was fantastic to work with by the way i mean he came into this with a, a slightly tarnished reputation of being, you know, difficult and having some personal problems. I have to say he was an absolute sweetheart on set. He was so easy to work with and a lot of fun and always brought like something new to every take. I and mean, it was almost like I just wanted to keep shooting with him because everything was new every time we tried something. So when we did the body bag gag, I mean, every every appearance out of the body bag was something different. So we had, you know, I forget like seven or eight takes of him doing different bits of like really crazy over the top stuff and then really kind of like not kind of more creepy and subdued and uh it took a while in editing to figure out what was the right way to end that scene because on the other hand it's not just eddie because eddie is kind of like the the punctuation mark of that story uh, it's basically aiden completely losing his mind because he's so crazy in love with virginia so when we kind of drift off into this dreamy you know kind of like cascade of light as they're like falling in love or whatever and then we hard cut to eddie coming out of the body bag it's like how do you juggle you know, those two emotions so close to each other. I mean, you're shifting gears pretty hard from one to the other, you know? Yeah. I mean, for myself, I could certainly tell because um, you did, your use of light was really, uh, really well done in the fact that it, it was telling when it was kind of a fantasy, if we were starting to sort of see it, uh, the lights invade the screen. That's right. I mean, yeah, like and, basically yeah. the more lens flares, the more you should, you know, question whether it's happening. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 were, you were channeling J.J. Abrams there, yeah. <laughs> but uh, It's funny because when, when we shot that, it was before Star Trek had come out. And at that course. point, I, I, I hadn't really, you know, kind of clocked J.J. Abrams as, as a guy who loves flares as much as he does. And, and I think I, I tweeted um, on the last day of shooting something like, you know, my lens flares will kick J.J.'s lens flares' his ass or something like that. And I don't mean that because I actually I actually love lens flares and I think they have become a bit of a cliche, but I, I, I do think that there's value to them. And, and in Crave, it was mostly, if you watch the film, lens flares usually play a part when Ron Perlman is on screen because I was trying to convey, it's my own little Deckard as a replicant thing. It's it's basically, is Ron Perlman actually there? And yes. there's, a, there's a scene when they're at the diner, uh, Aiden and, and Pete are talking and Pete asks for a glass of water and the waitress comes back and she puts the glass of water in front of Aiden, not Pete. And Aiden's like, why'd you put, give me water? And I remember that was my whole notion of, well, because Pete's not there, you know, Aiden asked for the water. So the water goes to, in front of Aiden. And, and, and when we shot the first take of that, I didn't tell Ron, I didn't want him to know because I wanted him to act truthfully as Pete in the real world. And uh, we had finished that take and Ron was like, well, that take was shit. And I'm like, <laughs> what, what was wrong? He said, well, they put the water in front of, in front of Josh, not me. And then I, I told him what I had in mind. And he's like, oh, okay. I wish you had told me. And I said, no, I don't want you to know. I don't want you to acknowledge that that's a thing, you know? So it was kind of funny, like the, the way we had to play little, little games like that on set. Well, I, I mean, I think one of the reasons Crave works so well, actually, is because um, you, you know, in terms of what's real and what's it, what isn't, and the sort of track in between that, uh, the fact that it is not absolutely obvious um, with everything, I think, is is one of the strengths. I think you, you know, had you had you been more obvious with it, it wouldn't have been so engaging and so interesting. But I mean, I really did like the bit where he did break the fourth wall and and do that bit in the car where he says, no, this is real. You know, I thought that was, <laughs> I thought that was a nice touch, but in terms, I mean, you've obviously mentioned 
your two sort of uh, main names in it, Edward Furlong and Ron Perlman. Um, I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about the casting uh, of this in general and how you sort of got them involved and, and a little bit about, you know, Josh and, and, and Emma as well. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because every time I, I think that any filmmaker, and I'm sure you guys would agree that, you know, when you, when you have your dream project and you want to get it made, you start thinking of your dream actors. And like you, you start dream casting in your head of all the actors in the world uh, who would play these parts, even if I can't afford them, who would play these parts. And, and we went through a bit of that. And, um, you know, eventually I, 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 became, I came up with a more realistic list of like indie film friendly actors who I thought might work. And um, and I guess I probably should mention names, but I mean, I actually got my first choice for one of the parts, um, and then that actor unfortunately had to bow out later, which really killed me. You know, it was like it crushed me that I had my number one choice. Um, but eventually, we you know we started running out of time. Um, I the crew was already in Detroit. We were already at, like the L.A. part of the crew was already in Detroit at the hotel, and we were still casting. And um, that was kind of like one of my biggest headaches was. Uh, you know, the producer on the film that was, you know, supposed to be handling that was kind of, you know, taking a bit of a, a slower pace, shall I politely say, um, <laughs> in terms of get, getting the cast together. So, um, you know, we were like literally just a you know weeks away from shooting and I'm freaking out because we don't have any of those four leads cast. So eventually uh josh lawson who uh who i didn't know at the time um and who i i first saw him in an, an unreleased um us remake of the simon Pegg show spaced um they did it they were doing a us remake of that um and i saw josh was the lead in that he played the simon Pegg role in the us remake so that was the first time i ever saw josh and i thought well you know, oh yeah because they're so alike aren't they <laughs> yeah I know, I know. Um, but that's the thing. It's like one, one is Americanized, you know, in the same way that like, you know, um, you know, like the, the, the UK office versus the U S office, you know? So it's, uh, it was just weird to like, see, okay, my, my main guy who is, you know, psychotic, broken, really dark and edgy and weird is going to be played by this really upbeat, funny, smart, you know, witty blonde dude, uh, you know, who's in, uh, who's in the space remake. So I, I kind of came to Josh at, at first sort of thinking, wow, he's not really what I had in mind. And then I actually spoke with Josh. Um, he called me from Australia and we had a wonderful uh, phone call where he conveyed to me, not just that he got it from a character point of view, he got it from a writing standpoint, from a directing standpoint, because I mean, he's a, a writer and director himself who, uh, who recently made his feature debut with the little death, which is a wonderful film, which I highly recommend. Um, very funny, very smart, and and Josh is very funny and very smart. So he, but he approached it uh, as as seriously as I as I was approaching it, and he, you know, he really had some great ideas. So I, I thought, okay, well, this makes me more comfortable. And then he he put himself on video. He recorded like like I forget it was like three scenes uh, from the script. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, okay, this this could work. I mean, and not only could it work, it could be really more interesting than I originally imagined because Josh brings just this inherent likability and, and humanity to the character that I was originally seen as a monster. You know, I, I, re I originally saw Aiden as a really kind of damaged piece of uh, humanity. He's very relatable. I mean, you, you know, right. I mean, that, that is like a, an amazing plum role for an actor. I mean, that, that it's a great role to have because it's got so many elements to it. But he's also, 
you know, he is very much the everyman as well and, and very relatable. So, yeah, I think he was a re- really good, good choice. <laughs> well, I think I think comedians often make uh, great, dark, dramatic characters. I mean, I think Robin Williams has, has done a few. He did a few roles like One Hour Photo, for instance, I think, where he plays a, a very, very dark character. But coming from uh, an actor who's who the world knew as a, as a you know top comedian. So I thought, yeah, I agree. Josh's comedy chops only help things, you know, because then you then you're then you're never really sure who you're dealing with because you got this likable guy who obviously can connect with you, but you you don't you're not sure you want to be connected to this guy because he's definitely got some issues. So anyway, so Josh came on board and and you know, we we flew him out and so we had our Aiden and then there's this process of, you know, kind of deprettifying him because I mean he was like such a nice looking guy. I mean he's so like handsome and rugged and you know I, I wanted to like you know downplay that so I made him look more like me you know gave, gave him, I told him you know put on some weight you know start eating pizza and uh, you know just like grow grow a nasty beard and we'll darken your hair and we'll kind of just we'll kind of mess you up a bit so that was Josh and um, around this time the script started floating around the different agencies because they kind of the word got out that there was this film that's gonna shoot soon and we're looking for actors desperately so then suddenly agents approaching us with their their actors and this one agent at uh, at UTA uh, Louise Ward really took a, a, a liking to the script and she was just trying to plug all of her clients into it um, so Emma Emma Lung was with her and uh, and joined us through through Louise so and, and Emma is interesting because not only um, is she incredibly uh, talented and smart and beautiful and, and funny but she also bears an interesting resemblance to um, what I will call the real world uh, inspiration for that character, because there are there are elements in Crave that are based on my own uh, uh, history. I'll put it that way, um, and and in some ways, of Aiden is kind of like the uh, the fractured alternate universe of me. Um, Virginia is the uh, alternate universe version of a real person that I had in mind for this part, and and Emma kind of looks like that person a bit. So I thought that was an interesting, you know, again lineup of luck. Um, and then when it came to Ron, it was the same thing. It was sort of like, well, we know we wanted an actor with some kind of name value, um, and because I was going to be like the anchor to the to the the marquee, you know, sort of like actor one, two, three, and Ron Perlman as Pete type of thing. You know, we knew we needed that sort of person. So we looked at a lot of different character actors and considered a lot of different people, and ultimately boiled down to who was available, who could we afford, and who was interested in doing it. And Ron was on a short list of about eight people. And, and then when you get down to that eight, you look at, well, who's, who's really best for the role? And I thought Ron would be a great fit because he's, he just has that, that, that streetwise, you know, edge to him and that, that face that just is like, has like a thousand stories behind it. And, you know, he's, and he's, he's such a consummate professional. You know, he's a total vet who just knows he's going to come in and knock it out. So he did. I was just wanted to sort of, as you touched on the relationship between Aiden and Virginia, and uh, do you think it's because I I sort of it rang a bell with me as well, and just as a filmmaker, you you do kind of get into these relationships where at first they're quite excited because you're a filmmaker, and then afterwards when they find out what the reality of that is like, that they're not so keen. Do you think you, that kind of was in in that sort of part of the film? Um, that's a, that's an interesting question. I don't, at the time I didn't really even consider that, or that didn't seem to be an issue at the time. And now that I look back, maybe it, it might've been, but the, the, the big thing for me was 
not just in terms of the writing, um, and all, but it was also in terms of like dealing with the actors for the relationship part of it was just that I had, I just had, I had my own baggage that I just needed to deal with. And, and I felt it wasn't just therapeutic. I also felt like it would help the story because originally it was conceived as kind of a, almost like a, a Canon 80s style, you know, uh, vigilante movie, you know? And, and in retrospect, that might've been a more, um, clear way to sell the movie is to make it more of a straight up vigilante movie. But because I was dealing with all of these relationship issues at the time, I felt like I, I it would make it more interesting. Like it would, it would give it a little more nuance, a little more humanity, a little more character. And it wouldn't just be a kick-ass, you know, this and that film. It'd be more about people. So at the time I was just following my instinct, really. I hadn't, I hadn't even intellectualized it in any way. I just thought, oh, this is better for the movie, you know? And now looking back, I, I, you know, it's been, it's been a while and a lot of different things have happened in my life since then. So I'm, I, I'm just glad I got it out of my system because it was, it was kind of nagging at me for the longest time. And now I feel like I'm completely divorced of that, that chapter in my life. And it, and, it, and I think it really helped the movie. I yeah, all, I'm, all I'm going to say is yes. And uh, <laughs> I thought Emma was great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I mean, if it had been an '80s canon-style film, I, I don't think it would have longevity. I think it might have just been one of those films that comes along, makes a bit of money, and then goes away. I think the the one of the great things about the film is the fact that you have this central relationship and that you do care about these two characters. Well, I mean, I'm glad you're saying that because that that to me is what allows me to sleep at night. And <laughs> because I mean, you know, it was you know, Crave did not make you know 100 million dollars. It didn't make you know, a fraction of that, but it was sort of like nice to make a film that I feel um, proud of, you know, and a, and a film that kind of like satisfied multiple um, facets that I was hoping to explore with not just the making of film, but just my own, my own stuff, you know, my own inner world. And, and I feel like a lot of that came out in Aiden. I mean, Aiden's inner monologues, all of his voiceover. I mean, that's, that's the way I think a lot. I mean, I'll be, I mean, I'm sure other people do. Other people have told me, God, that's just how I think. Um, and I, and I feel like when I'm driving along and I'm rehearsing a meeting I'm about to have, or I left a meeting and it didn't go as well as I had hoped. And I revise it in my imagination to think, God, if only I had done this, I have like these inner, you know, this inner dialogue with myself. And I thought, why not use that style of writing for the voiceover? So that was a lot of fun to write and to capture. And, and the whole thing with like the Bill Gates thing, I mean, that is, that's really from my own shtick in my own head where I'm like, Thinking, God, if only Bill Gates would just give me a billion dollars, everything would be fine, you know. And I, <laughs> well, I did love Bill Gates' cameo in it. I thought that was that was a really lovely touch. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish I could. I didn't want to release it in the in the behind the scenes extras, but there's there's an earlier take where the actor who's playing Bill Gates, uh, you know, the camera pans from the redhead with her, you know, she, her top is off, mm. and we pan over to Bill Gates. And the first take, that actor is completely just looking at the actress. He's just staring at her boobs. And that, <laughs> that, that, that was pretty funny to see Bill Gates, you know, quote unquote Bill Gates, not the real Bill Gates, uh, just like checking out this, those actors. Yeah. But um, you can't yeah. blame him, to be fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I, I know, I, I, Charles, you're not crazy. I, I think we all have those uh, inner monologues and, and, and cravings. I, I know I, for one, definitely do. Um, someone else in the cast that I think also deserves some mention because he's, he's wonderfully sort of unlikable is, uh, is it Christopher Stapleton, the, 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 the guy who played Barry? Is that right? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. I, th I thought... I thought he played that, um, you, you know, 
sleazy and unlikable just as he was supposed to be (laughs) there was one point where i was wondering if he was actually a real character or something in the imagination as well you know there there was that that sense of ambiguity there as well in places i felt yeah i mean that's that's an interesting uh theory i i didn't I, i always felt that he was real because in a way he's the one that he's kind of like the uh the, uh, the gateway to Aiden leaving the world of just a wannabe and then be actually taking action and becoming the vigilante, the, the quote unquote hero he's always dreamt of being because it's because of Barry and, and what Barry's doing. So it, it always was meant to be this sort of like um, transitional character that would help Aiden into this new world. So I never really thought of him as a fantasy character. I always felt he was real. But now that I look back on it, it that could have been an interesting thing it's just that at some at some point you need to have the reality uh of of the character's actions and and the consequences of those actions uh actually take place you know in the in the world that you've created and it can't just you can't just have everything in his head no well i, I thought he was real at the beginning i mean yeah. obviously all of the thing you know where, where he sees him at the wedding yeah. and then follows him and all that i thought that was real when i started to question it was when he confronts him later and you have the whole scene about the watch and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, Oh, hold on. Is this, could this be in his head or is this real? And I mean, I mean, that's one of the reasons it works, I think, because you have got a bit of that. Mm. I don't know. I disagree with you, Keith. I thought that was, that was real. I mean, the whole bit with the, the watch and taking it to the shop and the guys going, well, you haven't got a receipt and it's somebody in your position, you know, um, I thought was, well, very realistic yeah, but and it's when ambi- he turns up. It's, it's later, isn't it? He's it's not the watch, but it's there's a bit beyond that, isn't there? Where he turns up. There's a bit at the end, but even then, I knew that was just in his head. That was like uh, the right. devil and the angel right. yeah. on his shoulders. Right. There's a, we did an interesting thing with the audio, by the way, in that final uh, bit in the car with uh, Barry and 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 uh, and Eddie's character and and Aiden, which is, you know, you you record you know, sound, obviously on set, you have your production sound. And then if you need to clean it up, you go into the studio and you record ADR, you loop the lines to get it more clearly. What we did, we, we did all that, but then we went one step further and we had Josh record their lines as well. So if you listen really carefully, there's this strange kind of like echo to all the dialogue in that car where everything that Eddie says, it's Eddie with the production sound, it's Eddie slightly out of sync, in ADR, and then Josh slightly out of sync with his own ADR. So it's like all these voices, these three voices blend into one that has almost like the the audio DNA of, of Josh. So it's in Josh's head. It's in Aiden's head, basically. So all that dialogue has Josh as like this weird echo mixed in. Uh, so you think it's possibly in his head. And that was a lot of fun to, to try like to play games like that in post. That was That was a lot of fun. Yeah, well, the mix on it was great. I actually listened to it on headphones, and one of the, one of my thoughts of it was the sound mix is really good on this, you know. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it worked. Yeah, that was that was really tough because again, that's one of those things where you know the the independent director in me, like actually to, to rephrase it, the independent producer in me was fighting with the quote unquote big time feature wannabe director in me because you know I've, I've had the fortune of witnessing these huge a-list directors work and so i think oh that's how everyone does it i, I get to have you know six weeks of, of a mix or you know whatever it is that you know a mix takes and it's like 
I, you know, that you're working on independent budget and suddenly it's like, well, what would normally be six weeks is really only a week, you know, or two weeks. And, and suddenly you're pushing for all this perfection that, you know, unfortunately you can't afford. So that was always the, the dilemma because people wanted to give me what I wanted, but there was the reality of the situation that they were giving us a deal or they were squeezing us into a schedule. And, you know, um, that was the, that was one of the many lessons I learned is I need to, I need to know what I'm working with. I can't just go in with a blank check, you know, and, and assume that I can just get everything. But I think a lot of directors would tell you that maybe it is better to go in with that because then you come out with more no matter what. Even if you only have $10 to spend, you come out with $100 worth of value. And so maybe maybe I should just do that always. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see, how, we'll see what happens on the next one. I don't know. <laughs> um, what, one of the things I wanted to ask about as well is, I mean, you've got some incredibly uh, gory scenes in this in this film. And I just wondered how much of it was was practical how much of it was cg or whether it was a mixture of the two i just wonder whether you could talk a bit about that well we, we shot it with the intention of it all being practical i mean that was the absolute intention just because i didn't want to first of all spend the money i also didn't i also don't believe digital especially at that level is usually convincing um keeping in mind this is back in you know between 2009 and 2011 when we were doing this and visual effects of you know, exponentially come so much further since then. You look at a show like The Walking Dead, which has a lot of digital blood, a lot of digital gore. And, you know, you can kind of still tell, but it's gotten so, you know, so convincing that you kind of let it go. Um, you don't nitpick it. Whereas back when I was doing it, and given that we had a low budget, it was much harder to pull off. So we tried practical and we got, we kind of got like, I would say maybe 60% there, 70% there in terms of it being convincing. But we knew that in post we were going to have to digitally paint out certain things or add other 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 elements. The uh, the AA meeting, for instance, you know, we had this very kind of like fake looking dummy. But I realized I only needed it for the actual, like you know, three or four frames that the sledgehammer hits the skull, and then we would transition from the real actor to the to the fake skull, and then it would just be a geyser of blood. Um, Fortunately, um, I had I had you know made some friends working on the Blade Runner Final Cut and and working on the Alien anthology set that were all extremely talented uh, artists, either as visual effects or title design. In the case of Raleigh Stewart, who was kind of like my hero on this project, Raleigh designed the the Blu-ray menus for Alien anthology and Transformers two and three, I think. And so a lot of the projects I've worked on, I always try to get Raleigh on because he's, he's a, kind of a genius. And he also did the title design for Crave. And while we were working on it, I asked him, I said, you know, I've got about like 60 or 70 shots that are problem shots that need fixing or need some help. And he said, well, yeah, let me take a crack at it. So he started with about five or six shots and completely not only salvaged them, made them so much better. And so I just I kept feeding him shots, and I feel like by the time we were done, he must have done about sixty or seventy shots, uh, visual effect shots, never having done it before, you know, um, and incredibly convincing. I mean, and he and he would fix all kinds of problems that we had just because we were rushed, and he would uh, he would add things that we needed. For instance, in Aiden's apartment, for whatever reason, um, we had we had to build a fake wall and a front door to Aiden's apartment because we needed to create the illusion that there was a hallway outside of it, which wasn't there at the actual location, because the hallway portion, we had shot at an entirely different apartment across town in Detroit. So we had to like stitch these two locations together into one. So we created a fake hallway outside the door of Aiden's apartment. For whatever reason, whether it was no time or no money or whatever, um, someone in the art department thought that a 
bathroom door would be sufficient as the front door to an apartment in a bad part of Detroit. <laughs> you know, and if you have, if you're in a low, you know, low rent apartment in a bad neighborhood in Detroit, you're going to have all kinds of like, you know, safety chains and locks and deadlocks and what, you know, all that stuff. Right. And I'm looking at the dailies and I see this, this little, you know, teeny tiny puny little door, like door handle and nothing else on this front door. And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. So Raleigh went in and digitally added in a new knob, a, a lock, like a deadbolt. And he, and he made it look like a real front door. So, but that's the type of thing you would never, ever notice, you know, and Crave is filled with that type of invisible little like fixes that if, if you had seen the film raw, you would say, Oh, that looks a little dodgy. That doesn't look very good. Um, we had some shots because we were shooting two cameras where the other camera got into the shot. Um, Raleigh painted all that out. He either, he either took out mistakes or he put in fixes, uh, over about, let's say 70% of all of our quote unquote problem shots. So yeah, we started with the idea of being practical, but just we needed to rely on digital at some point just to fix all those little glitches. Well, no, I mean it's uh, digital is a, is very good for that. I mean, uh, it's when you just think that digital can fix everything, especially stuff that the yeah. human eye can pick up. Because I uh, tell the truth, uh, all that stuff you talked about, apart from the um, the shot with the hammer, um, I. Didn't, didn't pick up at all I mean I knew with the, the hammer shot there had to be some sort of uh, digital manipulation to it to cut from you know it being a, a live person to to whatever sort of dummy or or effect that you had but it was really well done just because I only noticed it because you know uh, I think it was my filmmaker's eye but I think to everybody else they would just think it was uh Wow, they actually caved that guy's head in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, a snuff movie. <laughs> it was funny because on the set, when we when we actually all sat around and you know watched it, and you know Ron was there and Josh was there, and we were just all watching this again, this like dummy about to get his head smashed in, and we were all thinking this could be the worst thing ever, or it could be fine, and it um, it was the worst thing ever. It looked terrible on set. But it was almost like a Monty Python <laughs> gag because just the hydrant of blood that came out was so comical. I mean, actually, you know what? It reminded me of it reminded me of that that one sketch from Monty Python, Scott at the Antarctic, and and like the whole uh, fight with the with the lion. I think it is. And there's like that one little like that one little spew of blood that comes out of its belly. I don't know if you remember that. It, it was like that cheesy. It was so like unconvincing when we first saw it. So I. Uh, this guy, Kelvin uh, McElwain, um, who I, I met on Blade Runner Final Cut, who actually was the, the digital matte painter on the final dub shot that we did in Blade Runner. He's the one who went in and fixed all those headshots um, of, like, you know, making it look convincing and adding some blood. And he actually threw some drops on the, like, fake, you know, CG blood drops in the lens, which is now a, a big cliche. But at the time, we thought it was kind of cool. Um, but, yeah, it was it was just a lot of finessing what uh, you know what as we waited to finish the film i thought well let me see if some friends can help out and just add some magic to everything and that's what happened it certainly did <laughs> absolutely um i've got to ask charles okay um saw this uh on netflix uh because it's not available to buy here in the uk however um you can get the region one dvd of it on amazon and i've got to ask are there any extras on the DVD? There are, but there's even more on the Blu-ray. So if you can, hey. if you, if you, yeah, if you can somehow find the Blu-ray, the the 
the North American Blu-ray, that has all the extras on it. It's got commentary. It's got like an hour making of. It's got half an hour deleted scenes. It's got it's got that play, that terrible play they go see. It's got the full version of the play with like act breaks and everything. Um, that was brilliant. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll, I'll be buying the Blu-ray when I come out to the States later this month, then, I guess. Oh, good, good luck <laughs> finding it. Good luck finding it. You might have to like come to my house and I'll have to slip the copy because it's really hard to find. <laughs> Uh, was there any plans to sort of release it worldwide? Because, um, as Keith said, we had to, I had to watch it on US Netflix <laughs> yeah. to see it, and um, we just—I mean, I was puzzled to think why this film is is not available in this country. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, it's just, uh, you know, <laughs> again, that, that I have to chalk that up to uh, lessons learned. I, you know. I, when the, when the Crave came out, it premiered at the uh, the Fantasia Film Festival in Montreal, and right off the bat, we, you know, I was approached by uh, some distributors, and then the film won Best First Feature at Fantasia, and then it went to Fantastic Fest in Austin, and I won Best Director in the like the first feature category. So it had a little, it had a nice you know launch, and and suddenly I was approached by all these distribution companies. Now, I was not familiar with a lot of these companies, and you would go onto their websites and you'd look at the absolute dreck they're releasing. I mean, really garbage movies. Mm. And I'm thinking, well, I don't want my movie to be on the same shelf as, like, you know, Atomic Pigs from Plan whatever. It's like, it's like I, don't, I don't want to be on, like, you know, it's just, it's just you don't want to be in that, that group. But, you know, amongst those, there was probably, like, five or six companies that were actually really good companies. And I just... I guess I just waited too long, you know, because then I went to to Sieges, the film festival there outside of Barcelona, and I was waiting to see what the European response was. And I, I guess I just I spent like a year um, just traveling with for like a year and a half traveling the world to festivals. And that, and by the way, that is incredibly time consuming. When again, when it's just you and you're out there like coordinating with festivals and then traveling to go support them and then doing all the Q and A's and the press at every single uh, festival. You know, and then to find the time to like do the research on, you know, distributors and and the whole like paperwork they have to do, and and then on top of that, you really have to be a completely like obsessed machine to chase down all the money that's out there. Because yeah, you may make a deal with a distribution company, and they may say, oh yeah, you'll you'll get X number of dollars here, and you you'll get X number of percentages of points here, and. I I almost feel like that you're just giving your movie away no matter what. I mean, you, you have to spend almost as much money mm. chasing the money uh, to make it even remotely worth your while. That it's it's it's, it's just not worth it. You know, I mean, it it, it is, and it's, and it's ridiculous for me to like just give up the movie. But I really feel like I needed a producer who could have handled that, and I just unfortunately didn't have that on this movie. So it was just um, you know, again, lessons learned, and next time I will not be doing that. So. Long the, the the short answer is basically that um, it did get some distribution in some territories uh, like Australia, New Zealand, and uh, South Korea, and, um, and and I think it's I think Sky TV has it, um, but uh, otherwise it was just North America, and um, that's kind of it. And I've I've, I've spoken with people since like dis- distributors that have thought about picking it up now to release it because my notion is well look if it hasn't been released in a territory it's still effectively a new film. But they're, you know, they're trying to draft any sort of buzz from the festival circuit, and that's long gone. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's one of those things where I'm certainly open to other uh, possibilities with the film. It's just that right now I feel like I want to focus on the next one, and uh, I'll just chalk this one up to, uh, you know, to uh, inexperience. No, I, I I know what you mean. I 
um, well, I, I didn't have as many distributors coming up to me with my own feature film, but uh, I was, um, I, I, I remember the experience of looking at some of the websites of the ones that did, and it's like, you know, they, they, they yeah. look so low rent yeah. that you go, bloody hell. But then in the end, um, the ones I did send it to, uh, they all turned it down because uh, it was one of those films that you just couldn't stick into right. like a pigeonhole you know it wasn't because uh, it was a horror but it wasn't it wasn't out and out horror it was uh, a sort of drama horror hy- hybrid they didn't quite know what to do with it I mean I got some great notes um, especially from Ghost House mm-hmm. Underground where they said we love it we just yep. don't know what to do with it so um, I ended up having to yeah. self-distribute it in the end well yeah. uh, if, if, you, if you'd like to take over a distribution on Craig for the rest of the world uh, <laughs> well the thing is my film is only available in the u.s it's not even available in my own country it's just <laughs> i i think the mechanics for self-distribution in the uk yeah. is just not there i yet. mean this, this is the problem isn't it folks if, if making the movie itself isn't hard enough that is actually just the tip of the iceberg because uh you, you know if you haven't got a uh, a major studio or anything involved then then yeah, it's tough getting it seen, isn't it? And getting it out there. So, um, but, uh, well, who, well, who knows? Maybe people are listening to this and go check it out. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I mean, it's like, it's like a, I mean, not that I'm a marathon runner, far from it, but I imagine a marathon runner, you know, they realize how long the race is and they, they try to, you know, measure out their, their energy and their pace and, and just try to like keep their eye on the prize of that finish line. I think with a filmmaker, when you're, when you're making a movie, it's like a marathon, but then it's almost like you, you get to the finish line and then someone tells you, oh, no, no, there's actually a second finish line a mile down the way, which is the distribution part of it. And you're like, you're like, wait, I, I spent all my energy just getting to this first finish line. Now you're telling me I have to go a whole other mile. And it's like, that is what I wasn't quite prepared for this first time. So next time I'll just ignore the first uh, finish line and just focus on that final one because, man, that's that was really tough to like to basically get together every little bit of energy I could to get the film ready for Fantasia, which we finished. I mean, we finished the film literally 48 hours before it was going to premiere there. And we, and we shipped the, the DCP up to Montreal. Like just, it was completely, as they say, wet. Uh, it was so barely finished when I got up there. So, um, and you think, okay, well now I can just enjoy it with an audience. And and at the time, I wasn't I wasn't honestly expecting the film to have much of a reaction. I thought it would just be a, a stepping stone to the next film. But then when it actually did get you know some uh, you know awards and some really good reviews, that began this whole process of other festivals reaching out to me. And then suddenly I'm traveling like for a year and a half with the movie, which I was not expecting to do. Um, again, it's a it's a first world problem. I don't I don't I'm not going to complain. It's fine. Um, but again, it was just sort of like the inexperience, uh, kind of caught me off guard. Well, I think, um, I know now this, because there's a lot more podcasts out there with filmmakers who talk about, you know, this sort of problems. I think, um, I think a lot of first time filmmakers now kind of have a lot more information about that than say back in, um, 2007 when I shot my film. So, um, yeah, it's sort of it's this thing now where you have not only to think about the film but you have to think about um how you're going to get the film out there what what your strategy is not just out doing festivals but uh screenings or are you going to go straight to vod or it it, it just you, you have to think now much further and the the whole thing of 
finding a distributor who takes care of that is kind of gone now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's you're right. It's it's, it's a completely different world, and and even you know, again, when Cray was happening, I'm sure with your own film, it was around that time when it, it it's a, it was a crossroads. I mean, it still is, but I feel like that's when our traditional notion of theatrical distribution, which I think any filmmaker, you know, always dreams of is going to play in a, you know, in a, like a thousand screens or 3000 screens or whatever around the world. And everyone's going to come to the theater to watch your movie. I mean, I hate to say it. I just think those days are kind of gone. I mean, for our, for independent level filmmaking, I feel like it is really all about the VOD, you know, and it's almost like a theatrical run is almost a waste of, of money. Um, Crave had like two theaters it played in just so that it would qualify for the you know in theaters now box on your you know your VOD or on demand uh, menu you know I mean Cray was lucky because you know they always want your uh, the first letter of your title to be you know early in the alphabet so you're higher in the ranking you know and so I was in the C's which is all right <laughs> but um, because it played in two screens for like by the way just one screening uh, at each there's one in Ohio and then one here in LA that qualified it for the in theaters now section. So that bumped it up to a higher level of uh, exposure. But you realize that's kind of where we're at now, unless you're making, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy or Star Wars or something, you're, you know, you really can't count on a theatrical release making you any serious money. Yeah, you have to be something like um, a paranormal. Paranormal activity, yeah. Escape my mind. Yeah, that, you know, it has to be like, you know a massive hit of, of like Blair Witch proportions and even 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 those days are gone I mean yeah. that's you look at like uh you know Blumhouse uh which is the company behind the paranormal activities movies and they have this really elegant production model of you know they don't spend more than five million on a movie and if the movie's good they'll release it theatrically if it's not good it'll go straight to VOD and they have no problem with that it's like whatever whatever is the best home for the movie when it's done is where they'll put it and that goes completely against my old way of thinking, which was, no, no, it's all about the theater. It's all about the old school style of let's let's put on a show and let's put a, let's put a movie in a theater and get people to show up. And now the new version of me is like, hey, I'm just happy if somebody sees it and pays for it and it doesn't get pirated. And I, you know, I, get, I can make, make another movie. You know, I'm just happy, <laughs> happy to be here. You know, exactly. I mean, you just we we make these films for people to see, and so. Um, and also, I think it's not so much a stigma now to be straight to VOD as it was with straight to video. No, you're you're absolutely right. And plus, the fact that television in general is so amazing these days. I mean, we are in this golden age of TV that more and more people are just investing in in a really nice home theater, and they're staying in, you know, and they're they're either binging on an, on on various TV series or they're uh, they're watching movies, and a lot of that's coming off of you know, Netflix and other portals. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a new world that I'm, I feel like such an old man that I have to adjust to it, but I, I re- you know, if you're going to survive, you have to. And I, and I feel like that's the whole new way of thinking. And in fact, you know, I've, I've pitched feature projects that have then come back to me. I mean, for instance, like the, the Philip K. Dick one I mentioned earlier that went around town and got mm. really great coverage from different production companies. But one big one actually came back to us and they said, look, we don't really want to do this as a feature because it's not based on an existing title or IP, but what would you consider making it a TV show? And that really got us thinking like, wow, there's, there, there might be this whole new dimension we have to consider whenever we pitch a project that it's not just a two-hour movie. It might have to be like a seven-season show, and how do we pace that story out? in that kind of way, you know, and that's the whole new level of conversation that, that happens on a regular basis now. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's the way it's all mm. going, most certainly, yes. I mean, is it a story that could be turned into a TV series? I mean, it could. Uh, it just wasn't envisioned that way, so we're going to have to, mm. like, you know, kind of, like, take it back to the drawing board a bit and, and rethink it. I think the, the concept could work over the course of a TV series. It's just that how do you keep it interesting week to week, and what are the new discoveries each week? Because, you know, serial narratives are all, you know, where it's at now, and it's not just like the old days of just, you know... Uh, mystery of the week you know it's you need to pace this out you need to know when you're going to reveal certain things in your what was originally your two-hour story and now you're you know you're developing what like 13 14 hours of, of material each season so that times you know five six or seven seasons whatever you're planning I mean, you, you really have to think the long game here yeah. and that's that's a whole new conversation you know did you uh catch uh, the man in the high castle yeah, I did. And actually, my so my writing partner on, on I Hope I Shall Arrive Soon, Kaylin Egan, he's one of the co-executive producers of Man High Castle. So I've been, you know, very interested in how that's been going. And um and he's you know, he's told me quite a bit about the making of that show. And it's it's just really interesting to see how you take uh what's what's kind of like a, a finite story in, in literary form and then develop that into an ongoing, you know, episodic drama. Um yes, especially no spoilers, please, Simon. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. I, just... I know what you're like. No, uh, I, I mean this whole this whole speculative fiction um, stuff is is really quite intriguing, isn't it? It seems to be the uh, the thing of the moment, you know. Which uh, I must admit, it's on a a long list for me of of ones that I want to watch. Definitely, yeah. Well, it's it's a very it's a very compelling um, situation and interesting world that High Castle, I think, uh, you know, is is exploring. And what's interesting is, you know, the book is, is, isn't really a completed story either. It's just it kind of sets things up and tells part of the story. And then I think uh, Dick was actually planning on a sequel. I think, I think he did start writing it, but it was never finished. So I'm very curious to see, you know, how the series, you know, goes beyond what Dick originally, you know, originally wrote or planned for. Um, because it's, that's not just like, I mean, that, that he, you know, Dick was a very interesting writer and, and had some really really you know complicated and complex but and yet fun and whimsical ideas that are uniquely his i mean you can't just like copy philip k dick you can just hope to adapt him faithfully you know and i'm curious to see how people kind of reverse engineer his storytelling to tell future stories that go beyond his writing i mean the the one of the things i liked about this uh the man in the high castle was even though they were adding their own elements to it um they were very faithful to the book there was uh, I had read the book ages ago uh, before watching it, and then when as I was watching it, I was going, "Oh, wait a minute! That's from the book. That's from the book. Yeah. That's from the." Yeah, it was it was really nice because it from the outset it kind of looked like they took the idea and you know went, "We're just going to go. All right, we'll take the name and the idea and just go our own way." So it was it was really gratifying to see that they actually, um, as well as adding their own stuff, uh, which complements the 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 material from the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's cool. <laughs> I, I look forward to checking it out. I really, I really, it is on my uh, list. I don't have Amazon prime at the moment, but uh, I might treat myself an upgrade and, uh, and, and definitely watch that one. Cause um, it's definitely uh, a kind of interesting topic for me. So, yeah. Well, and now, now more than ever, especially here in the states. I mean, just because you look at our, how screwed up our politics are right now, and then you compare that to this alternate world where the Nazis won World War II, it's kind of like I hope 
people are paying more attention to Man in the High Castle because it's almost like they're getting a sneak peek of, of a direction we could possibly go in. I hope I hope I'm overstating and exaggerating the situation, but it is it is a very interesting time right now. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think that um, when that Trump was considered a joke at the beginning and now is really you know actually being considered to to win you know uh, the the vote for the Repu- Republican Party is just uh, you just thought no this this is crazy. I know. I know. We keep we keep thinking oh it's crazy it's never going to happen and then it just keeps happening and we're like wait it's it's really not going to happen is it and <laughs> it just kind of keeps going on so yeah we'll see it's interesting it's scary yeah yeah well I think that's a, a good place to end it no you want to end with, uh, you want to end with Trump really <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure that's not a good place i know unless keith have you got any more questions oh god you know me i could i could probably go on all all evening but no i I, go on one more question um i'm just okay uh but i one of the things we didn't really cover with your um uh documentaries was you you did uh, you did the work on the amazing spider-man as well did you is that correct have i read that right uh, you did, yeah. I worked on. I, I, my, I've done three Spider-Man movies. I did Sam Raimi's Spider-Man Two, and then I worked on Amazing One and Amazing Two with uh, Mark Webb. Ah, cool. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, I, that that that's kind of interesting because I was going to ask what what your um what your thoughts were on the on Mark Webb's version of of Spider-Man compared to Raimi's, but uh, I might be putting you in a difficult position with that question if you worked on both. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's, it's fine. I mean, I, I think they're both two different flavors of, of the same type of meal, basically. I mean, it's I, I think that the the Raimi movies are, um, especially the you know the second one, which I love. I think the second one I was that I was lucky enough to work and be involved with. Uh, is such a great comic book movie and certainly one of the, the best ones ever made. Um, and then Mark's films, I thought, and it, it's kind of there's a strange story behind my connection to Mark Webb, which is that in 1998, I, uh, I, I was hired basically to direct 16 commercials uh, for AM Records for this rapper named Corrupt and his, and his album Corruption that was coming out. And I, I shot these commercials, I think 16 commercials in two days it was it was crazy how fast these got whipped out but i had no editor at the time and and the producer on the show or on the on the commercials uh brought up brought an editor in and i met with them and this this young editor was named mark webb (laughs) and so mark edited all these commercials with me and we became friends and then later i directed a music video that uh, I brought Mark in as the editor of, and uh, and we just kind of became friends. And you know, I, I knew that he was doing really well directing music videos. And then one day, Fox called me and said, "Hey, we have a project uh, we were thinking about you producing the behind the scenes for." And I said, "Oh, what is it?" And they said, "It's this movie called Five Hundred Days of Summer." And I said, "God, that sounds really familiar. I think I just heard about that." And they said, "Yeah, well, you should. Your friend Mark directed it." So I was like, "Oh, okay." And and that began that kind of rekindled our, our you know our friendship. And then he brought me into Amazing One and Amazing Two. And so I, I had different perspective because here I was not just a documentarian, but I was I was kind of cheering my friend on who I was so proud of, and I was just so happy to see that he was not just advancing his career, but that he was getting to tell these you know really fun stories on a bigger canvas than, than I think he was ever considering he would do. So I was just more of a cheerleader on the side, just who happened to be operating a camera now and then, or who was conducting interviews. And um, I'm really 
it's really interesting how his films were received versus the Raimi films because I do believe that there was um, there was a lot of uh, value and 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 like creatively speaking to what he was bringing to that world because you can't just keep remaking the same things over and over again. I think you have to give it a different spin um, each time just to keep it not just to keep it interesting but also to kind of make it more relatable to modern audiences. Um, otherwise, they should just watch the original story or movie or whatever it is that you're remaking. So. It was it was really it was a really interesting experience just to, to observe on those because again it was I couldn't be as objective as I normally would be you know I couldn't just just tell the story I felt like I needed to put myself in Mark's shoes and and try to understand where he was coming from and I think on the whole he did a really great job and I'm you know it ended the way it ended and now they're moving on in a different direction and I'm excited to see that too I'm sure that's gonna be awesome because I love Marvel and I think Marvel's been doing a hell of a job with their titles so. Um, I don't. I don't see these different um, iterations of Spider-Man or any other character as things to compete against each other or to contrast against each other. I think they're kind of just fun to see all the different uh, visions that will come out of it. I mean, that's true for pretty much every major franchise. I, I kind of look forward to the different uh, directors. Um, it's almost like a film festival based on one subject. You know, it's like that's why I love the Alien movies because it's four movies basically about the same monster. But from four radically different directors, and and I really enjoy that uh, the diversity in in storytelling. Yeah, I think that's a really refreshing way of looking at it. Actually, you know, because um, as I said, a lot of people they compare and contrast, but not necessarily in uh, in positive ways. But uh, you know, it is absolutely like they've been doing with the comic books for years. You know, it's different adaptations of of that source material. Um, and you know, may, 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 maybe those ones weren't different enough. Maybe that was was some of the problems. But uh, I see Mark Webb's doing all right for himself, though, because I notice he's gone on now to be uh, producer and director of the Limitless TV series. I don't know whether you've uh, you've caught that, but he's uh, he, he's credited for every episode of that now. So um, you know, yeah, he's doing he's, all right for himself. <laughs> he's, he's, he's doing good. And, uh, I, I mean, he's a really great guy and he's super talented and, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's really a wonderful, uh, filmmaker. So I'd, you know, I'd, I'd love to see him, uh, continue on with, uh, what he was, what he started with Spider-Man, but obviously it's, it's going in a different direction, but Hey, you know, we, we got to see at least two of them and I'm happy about that. I just wanted to say, um, I'm a big fan of the, uh, assembly cut of Alien Free and when comparing the two of them, I, would always watch that one and i know you had uh, a lot to do with with the assembly cut and i just wondered um if you've had any more contact with david fincher over it or if he still just doesn't want to know well i mean truthfully i never had any contact with fincher over it i mean we send out messages and we'd occasionally get messages back but it was never like i never had like a one-on-one -on -one with him where i got to like you know, get the full scoop of what he wanted or what he even cared about. Basically, we started that with the, with the, uh, the mandate of, you know, he doesn't really care because he doesn't consider it his movie, so do whatever you want with it, just don't call it a director's cut. And that, you know, that kind of like guided us on this path of, of restoration, of trying to dig up a version of the film that previously existed that was something that Fincher and editor Terry Rawlings had worked on. So it, so it had some, you know, it, it was an authentic, uh, you know, uh, piece of the, of the puzzle, you know, it was something, it was an artifact of the production. So we found that, I mean, it took, it took a while and going through tons of boxes with, you know, from the Fox archive, but we found this early test screening cut 
And it was the it was the last cut, I believe, before there was a lot of sort of quote unquote studio interference and reshoots and you know test screening notes and things like that. So if if there was ever a pure version of Alien Three, which you know is you, you can't even say that with a straight face, but if there was a pure version of it, it was that I think. Uh, the film. I mean, if you if you watch my documentary on it, you'll you'll see that the film was, you know, creatively compromised from even even before Fincher. You know, so um, it was it was a really tricky and and problematic uh, production, which obviously was gold for me in terms of the documentary. I mean, that, that was just amazing material to to discuss and go into. But the um, but this uh, work print edition or this assembly cut or whatever we're calling it. Um, you know, that was more about restoring what existed and finishing visual effects that weren't completed and trying to polish it up to make it a presentable version of the movie. So it wasn't just a scratchy work print uh, that had temp music from other movies in it. We, you know, we tried to make it a presentable, something you could actually watch in a theater, you know, but a version of that cut. And that required, you know, several new effect shots that had to be finished. And, you know, I did consult with Richard Edland about that. I talked to him and he gave me a binder full of notes and things that we could kind of use as, as a guide. And, you know, we'd, we'd get the occasional mysterious, you know, communicate back and forth between, you know, Fincher's office and our office. And it was, it was, it was, it was kind of a, an interesting experience. And, I, you know, I've told the story before, but um, one day I, I came back to my office and we're in the middle of restoring Alien 3 and there's a, there's a voicemail for me. And it basically goes like this. It's like, and, and by the way, I have to preface this by saying I, uh, I produced the, the DVD for, uh, and the Blu-ray for One Hour Photo from Mark Romanek's film, One Hour Photo. And so this message is on my voicemail, and it's, Charles, this is David Fincher. Mark Romanek told me to call you about Alien 3. And then it hangs up. <laughs> it was literally that, that tortured. You know, it was such a tortured, like, he didn't even want to talk. He didn't want to even say the words Alien and 3 in the same sentence. Um, so yeah, that that was about as close as we came to any kind of official communication. I, I wish I had that voicemail. I remember reading the Dark Horse comic, and I remember there was there was one bit in the comic book where they showed the uh, the Queen uh, embryo coming out of Newt and swimming into Sigourney uh, into Ripley's mouth. Yeah. And I was just wondering was was that ever filmed, or was that just something that that was an early draft of a script that dark horse got i believe that to be uh strictly an early draft and there might have been some some plans to do it at some point but i didn't see any footage i mean we went through a lot of footage to try to cobble this this cut together i mean it wasn't just that we found a cut and we just transferred it we had to go into the negative and kind of conform the negative to the new cut that we found so in doing that we also went through tons of other uh bits of footage for for the the behind the scenes extras because a lot of and a lot of my documentaries one thing i like to do is i like to pull outtakes and raw footage and alternate angles so you can at least have a different experience you're not just watching a clip show from the movie you know and so in in part of that uh discovery process you know we were looking for everything and and we found we found like alternate shots of the super face hugger you know the, the queen face hugger that were, was not in fincher and rawlings you know work print cut that we included in the documentary. So we, we, if it was there, we would have included it in some form. Yeah. Um, it's just that we didn't see it. I mean, that happened not like on, on Blade Runner. People said, oh, there's this bit where Deckard reloads his gun or, or you see Batty talking to so-and-so on the, in the vid phone booth. And it's like, well, we went, I, I personally, me myself went through, I think it was like 997 boxes of film elements. I went through all that myself 
And I didn't see any of that stuff. doesn't mean it didn't exist. It just does not exist now. It's not there in, in, in the vault. So um, that's kind of, that I just do the best I can. You know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it was just, it was always something that, um, you know, I was always curious about because um, in, you know, like in a comic book, it's quite easy to, to draw something like that. But to actually make it happen, especially back then, would have been very difficult to, you know, have had this little animated embryo swim out come out the mouth swim and then go into ripley's mouth so i was just curious to know if they even attempted it i mean yeah i'm sure it was under discussion it's funny how uh people's childhood memories kind of um become a real thing in people's uh brains because for instance you know when i was a kid you know you'd read the star wars storybooks right and the star wars storybook had two still images of Luke meeting Biggs on Tatooine. And it's like, I'm sure I spoke with kids who swore that that was in the, the CBS TV version of star Wars that aired like Biggs and Luke talking on Tatooine. And I kept trying to say, no, it was never there. It was just in the storybook that you saw as a kid and your own imagination filled in the blanks with those images that you saw. Um, it's the same on, on alien. I, you know, the, uh, the heavy metal, um, illustrated story of alien mm. has a couple panels where the alien is sort of like in this, hibernation mode and it looks like a big biomechanical box okay and like fans online have argued like that this box existed and that they, they swore that they saw the alien kind of unfold out of this box and stand up and and uh you know block the uh, the corridor preventing Rip, ripley from escaping and i swear i went through all the footage looking for that damn box and it does not exist it's, <laughs> it's there on the page and if you look at it it doesn't really even look that technically that specifically Giger-esque. It's definitely alien looking and, you, and it, it's a great idea and it's, you know, beautifully illustrated in, in, the, in the comic book. But I, you know, you, there's no conceptual art that I could find. There was no stills. That's the other thing is I go through like the, the photo galleries uh, or the photo archives of these studios and, you know, those are tens of thousands of images sometimes and you see pretty much everything that they were even thinking about doing. Even if it doesn't exist as motion picture, it's there in still photography and that box was not there. So, I have to convince people that the box the box is not shot. It might have been thought about and discussed. And and there is footage of the alien like rising in the corridor and people I think see that and they assume, oh, it must have been the box at some point. So, you know, there's little there's like little back alleys in human in human memory, I think, that just sometimes you know, much like Aiden and Crave, not to bring it back around to that, where you just kind of like imagine that you saw something and you just think that that's real and it's not, you know. Now oh, wow though, as as a fanboy, it must be uh um, so interesting and so cool to go through all this stuff as part of your job, though. It must be amazing. <laughs> well, I mean, especially when it's when it's movies that you grew up with and that you love. Like, even if you weren't working in the film business, if you really loved a certain movie and then you get to go through this stuff, yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, again, there was a whole variety of things on Blade Runner that I discovered I had no idea existed and deleted scenes I didn't even know existed that... You know, I don't even think anyone, um, apart from the production, even realized like that stuff had been shot. And um, it was really so much fun to like dig that up and present it so people could be kind of surprised. I think that was the biggest thing when the Blade Runner five disc set came out was, you know, hardcore fans of the film for many, many years who thought they knew everything suddenly were seeing a ton of things they had no idea even existed. And that was one of my greatest joys when that that came out and I got the reaction. You know, that was that was a lot of fun. And I knew, you know, for like the the years we were working on that project, I knew that was coming. Like I said, you know, I, I had seen the stuff and I had to be quiet about it, but it was, I just couldn't wait to see the reaction of that. And that's always the fun thing when you're doing a, a catalog title is when you unearth something 
like with aliens, like the Burke cocoon scene that for, for so long had been unreleased. And I, you know, I saw it, whatever, 13 years ago, whenever it was, I was working on the, on the quadrilogy DVD set, but we couldn't release it because it, we didn't have approval to release it. And then it finally came out on the Blu-ray and then suddenly you get the reaction that you've been holding inside yourself for years. You know, so that's, that's the, the, the pro and the con is you get to see it, but you can't always share it. Hmm. Was with the Blade Runner five disc set was was it always the plan to release every cut of the film? Uh, that was kind of a, an evolving plan. Um, I, you know, there was always the idea that we wanted to basically. I mean, this and this isn't meant as a as a, a criticism, but I looked at what was happening with the Star Wars special editions and, and reaction mm. to people just being upset they couldn't get those original versions, um, and I and I totally sympathize with that. I, I thought, you know what, let's make sure that we get as many versions as we can so that people can not only enjoy their, their favorite version, but also you can see the evolution of the cut, um, not just creatively, but also politically, like all the, you know, the, the behind the scenes players who all had a, a say in it, um, which is frankly the reason why there's so many cuts, because Ridley didn't really get his say in the early days of, of the film. So it was, it was not just a matter of, of evolution and archival material was also trying to make people happy you know so that was that that was the the goal was to make people happy and give them as many versions of the film as we could and i remember one day in a meeting at warner brothers we were just talking about the versions and and then i kind of just randomly said you know if you really want to get them excited put the work print on and then and and to their credit warner's jumped on it they were like they they you know you could tell them like they were kind of factoring it in their brains like okay how are we going to make this work because it has all this temp music from other movies it has music from like planet of the apes and humanoids from the deep and the hand it, you know it's like it's a clearance issue you know and uh, and then where is the work print like how can we even present that so it was it was interesting that on a whim i just i just happened to say like hey that would be really cool guys if we could do that and then Warner Brothers made it happen. And that was one of the great joys of Blade Runner was like working with a studio like Warner is that gets it, you know, and they were so supportive and so just like eager to make this the, the Grand Slam release that it needed to be. And I think that we accomplished that, you know, I mean, there, there, there are things I look back and wish I could have done differently or polished better or just wish we had more time for. But on the whole, I, I feel like we delivered what the fans were, were counting on. Oh, definitely. Well, I think you delivered more than the fans were expecting. Yeah, we thank you. A lot more. We thank you for for suggesting that because that's that's great. It's what it's what we all want from those films, definitely. Um, I also noticed you you got to at least mention this uh, before you go. Um, you've done you did some work on on Twin Peaks as well. Is that correct? On a behind the scenes for that. Uh, yeah, I produced the the Gold Box DVD and then the uh, the entire mystery Blu-ray set. Right, cool. Yeah, because I've got the Gold Box uh, thing um, ready to rewatch before they uh, when they eventually get round to the you know the the the, the next series. <laughs> well, uh, you should you should try to get the Blu-ray set because the Blu-ray first of all looks and sounds much better, and also there's a ton more material on oh, it. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Really great stuff. Yeah, really good stuff on the Blu-ray. Ah, well, add it to the wish list then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I haven't seen it, but um, there's is there like there's a longer cut of uh, Fire Walk with Me on there, isn't there? Uh, there's like about ninety minutes of deleted scenes edited into, edited into sort of a uh, continuous experience. So it's almost like it's kind of like what I did on with the Blade Runner deleted scenes, where I, I took all the deleted scenes and stitched together a mini narrative like a 46 minute or 47 minute narrative it's it's, it's oh, like that it's basically david lynch himself 
you know, took the 90 minutes of deleted scenes and alternate scenes from Fire Walk With Me and, and you know, fully finished them and polished them up and did sound design and music and everything and made it like a coherent, uh, you know, mini movie, basically, or alternate version of, of the movie. Um, so you can watch it and experience it as a, as a story, you know, and as a, as a piece of film and not just leftovers that like scraps off the table. I mean, this is a really fully produced piece that he and his people did. So it's a, uh, yeah, I think that was one of the holy grails for sure of all the other discs I've worked on. I know the fans wanted that one, um, quite a bit. I mean, that was like, you know, people were campaigning for, for decades to get those deleted scenes released. And Ken Ross at CBS DVD, um, he, you know, worked out the deal with, with David Lynch and, you know, between the two of them, I think we, we can thank them for making that dream become a reality. Well, I imagine he was quite hesitant over the fact that um, the TV cut of June wasn't to his liking to the fact that he actually took his name off the uh, off the credits. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't I don't I don't know uh, his thinking on that one. But I but I think that the fact that he he, he pulled an Alan Smithy on that one kind of speaks volumes. So, um, mm. yeah. <laughs> any any time you take the name off or something, it's not a, it's not a good sign. No, yeah. not when you think yeah. of all that work and then you don't want your name on it. So yes, it has to be bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I got to say though, I mean, I, I'm one of those people. I love Dune. I think Dune is a very underrated film, and I and I keep hoping that one day that'll get the proper treatment it deserves. Um, you know? Yeah, I can. I I mean, I'm I'm a you big know, fan of it as well, and having watched the miniseries as well, which is it's kind of like it's the book, but it's not as good as as David Lynch's June. Um, I, you know, I'd love to see you know somebody really take a crack at that film. But um, I, again, I think David Lynch is just he wasn't a big fan of the experience or the reaction to it. Um, it's um, well, I mean, hopefully one day you know it'd be you know somebody will do you know, an all singing, all dancing disc on it. Yeah. Actually, that brings up a question for me. It's what do you think is the future of film? Because, you know, we're starting to see things move away from, from DVD and Blu-ray and heading more towards um, streaming and online. Do you think that's the way it's going to go or are we going to see another format come along? Well, I mean, we are going to see another format. We're going to probably see a couple of them or a few of them before things go fully streaming. I mean, I'm a, I, I love physical media. Um, I love buying something and having the thing on my shelf and know that it exists. Um, I don't like this idea of, you know, things that are out in the ether that are sort of like I, I paid for, but you know, if, if a, if a major catastrophe happens and we lose all that material, am I going to still have access to what I paid for? I mean, that's paranoid and kind of ridiculous, but I do believe in physical media so having said that, yeah, I think everything's going to go the way of streaming and digital downloads. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's unavoidable. And it's, I get it. I mean, it's the convenience of it is very enticing. Um, you know, but it, ironically, you know, David Lynch famously bashed people who watch a movie on their iPhone. And I feel like that's, you know, can you imagine Lawrence of Arabia on your iPhone? I mean, that's, it's ridiculous, you know. So I, 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 I get the convenience and I get the fact that the modern human doesn't really care about the artistry the way some of us do, some film purists do. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's kind of sad too, because I'm noticing like shot composition is changing. Like people, when they, when they're on set and they're looking at a video monitor, they start composing for a home video experience because they're basically looking at the, the monitor, the size of their TV set at home in most yeah. cases. 
And I, I, I kind of think back to the days when you didn't have that, when you had to basically trust your cinematographer and you were there on location, you took in the full sight of what you were seeing. And, uh, now I just feel like things are getting more and more kind of visually, you know, homogenous, if that's the correct way to put it. I just feel like it's getting to be kind of samey, samey, you know, <laughs> and uh, I wish, I wish it wasn't. And I, I, that, that boils down to just, we want things easy. We want it now. We want it free. And yeah. I think, I think viewers are becoming extremely spoiled, uh, in, on multiple levels. And, and, uh, and I, and I have to admit, I am often like that. I'll want to see something when I'm on a plane and I shouldn't be seeing it. You know, I mean, one of my favorite directors working right now is, is David Ayer. And I, and I, the, I was only able to see Fury for the first time on a plane, on a tiny little screen. I mean, I was furious, but I thought, well, I go, I got to see the movie. You know, I didn't have a chance to see it before then. And now I'm, you know, I saw it and then I saw it again on a bigger screen. So it was almost like a preview. It was like a two-hour trailer for the for seeing the real movie. But um, I, you, were, I, I, you were furious about Fury, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I agree, though, with a, with a lot of the things that you you're saying there. I mean, I mean, for me, <clears throat> Blu-ray, you, you know, it is it is that collector's medium. It, it it's for collectors and completists and people who are passionate about it. And I, I mentioned in a podcast we did before. Um, you know, sort of liking it to books. And it's quite funny because I've got a few Blu-rays that are actually uh, digi-book Blu-rays. So they have like a sort of 45-page book as part of the cover. And I love that because that's like combining two of my favorite things in something that you can put on a shelf. You know, it's brilliant. <laughs> so I, I hope it continues. But uh, but yeah, like Simon correctly raised, it's, it, it is probably... Um, you know, a dying medium in, in, in the long run, which is kind of sad, but, uh, the way things are. Well, I mean, I remember as a kid, just when I, I'd get like an LP, you know, and I'd listen to the music on the album and I would just stare at the cover, the front and the back of the cover, or if it, or if it opened up, you know, I mean, I would just like, I would have that physical visual stimulus to go with the music. And, uh, that was such a simpler and I think more innocent and elegant time in terms of enjoying entertainment and now i just feel like we're having you know data just like plugged into our brains and just it's just i don't know it's just it, the the romance is going away i think and that's the sad part of it for me which which is why i try to i try to keep it alive in my own life in terms of the way i enjoy film and art and music i just i, I try to keep it old school but i'm also well aware just as someone who has to survive in this business that it's definitely changing and it's already changed you know and um Keep our fingers crossed that it, uh, you know, it still remains something we're all interested in. You know, I feel like it's so much of it's been devalued um, that it, I, I regret the way that it's, it's gone. But I guess the, the story is just keep keep fighting to tell you know great stories. You know, like that's that's the goal. It is. You know, there's some of us out there who still, you know, that's our goal is to sort of tell good stories. So, you know, that people would take interest and try not to do something that, um, you know you'll see in the cinema you know a lot yeah <laughs> all right i think that's, that's a, a that, that, is, that is actually a very positive note to end on so yes <laughs> I, I am i much as i could talk all night i'm in total agreement there that that's a good place to put a line under it so Great. cool <laughs> okay we're we are gonna end in our uh normal fashion and that's um we let the uh, listeners at home know where they can find our work on the internet so um charles which is um where's a good place to find uh your work uh wow i don't really have like a 
a hub per se. I mean, you can just uh, go to my IMDb page, I guess, and look up everything I've done and see if any of that appeals to you. Um, you can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter, although I barely use Twitter. But uh, you know, I mean, I my name is unique enough. I think if you if you're able to spell it correctly, you'll find whatever it is that I've done. Yeah, you've got a pretty good um, <laughs> Wikipedia page actually that tells that that has quite a lot of information about you, and even a photo of you at WonderCon 2015. How about that? There you go. Oh, good it's, old. It's, it's great. It reminds me how much weight I have to lose. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so uh keith where can we find your work yeah um okay if you go to youtube and you put in british isles that's isles spell e-y-l-e-s as in my last name you like what i did there right british isles and uh you can find there um six short films that i wrote produced and directed for your viewing and as always you can find my work at independentrunnings.com uh, you can listen to this podcast on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and on uh, YouTube. Uh, please leave a review and rating uh, on iTunes and Stitcher, because uh, it all helps. And uh, do join us for our next podcast. So um, I think that just leaves us to say thank you for talking to us, Charles. Yeah, thank uh, you so much. It was a, it was a pleasure. I, I loved it. Uh... How long it went, I guess you guys will call in tomorrow at noon for part two. <laughs> uh, to continue, yes. Yeah, it was, it was great. No, it, was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for doing it. No, thank you.